Before we jump into part two of fad diets, let's quickly recap what we covered in part one. After introducing Beth and getting a brief background in her work as a registered dietitian, we established that there's no one size fits all when it comes to diet. There are a lot of great areas in nutrition and it's a pretty complex science. Humans have a pretty unique and complicated relationship with food affected by many things. Because of this reality, we discussed a number of things that affect our relationship with food and where our practices and beliefs come from. We talked a lot about the social determinants of health, culture, and social dynamics related to food and dieting. We wanted to make sure we defined a number of things to shape the conversation around fad diets. One of the most important terms we discussed was health. We used the World Health Organization's definition as a clear guide for this conversation. And then we established that health is multifactorial and not all individuals experience health in the same way. We also discussed the challenges in nutrition research and the importance of lived experience. We hit very briefly on how fad diets have looked over hundreds of years and how they have evolved into what we see in the present day and age. Most importantly, we covered red flags that indicate a fad diet versus healthy eating patterns. This was important to shape the rest of the conversation you will hear today in part two of fad diets. Now that we've got our recap, here's part two of fad diets. This is the facts of life where research-based knowledge from the Failing Consumer Sciences is brought to you with life applications. I'm your host, Amanda Harner. Our guest today is registered dietitian, assistant nutrition educator, and program coordinator for UGA Extension, Beth Oshea Kindemo. And these are the facts on Bad Diets, Part 2. And kind of goes back to that whole, like, being very cautious to not call things blanketly good or bad and being so black and white about some Mm -hmm. of the conversation around nutrition. There's a lot of gray area. Um, So speaking of gray area, let's talk about keto. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where do we start? (laughs) Maybe start with like, okay, not everybody maybe realizes um, where keto has its origins. So maybe yeah. let's start there because I think that's an actually an important piece to the conversation about the keto diet in particular. And then mm-hmm. maybe explain um, ketosis pretty well so that people <laughs> understand. <laughs> explain ketosis pretty well. That feels like a challenge. But um, so the ketogenic diet is something that's been around for quite a while. Um, I forget exactly when it was developed, but it was developed as a manner of managing epilepsy, um, particularly in children. So it was a it's a very strict uh, regimen that can help reduce the incidence of seizures in folks with epilepsy. And it involves weighing out all food and having a ratio of um, four grams of fat to one gram of carbohydrate. So basically it's a very high fat, um, moderate protein, low carbohydrate diet. So it doesn't involve calorie counting, but it doesn't involve counting um, those grams of carbohydrate and, and 
and when when this diet came about to manage epilepsy, um, there's a lot of heavy cream involved. <laughs> so it's not the most appealing sort of diet ever, but for some folks, it's really, really effective. And I've um, worked with people who have had to follow um, you know, a very low carb ketogenic type of diet for managing um, seizures. And, and you can think, you know, if you have a seizure, you can't drive for six months. So that's a, like, there's a lot on the line there of, of whether you're going to experiment or, or try to stay, you know, as low carb as possible. And, and it's something that for people who do need to follow that as a, as a, a lifelong diet and, and have those particular needs, it's something that can be done. There's ways to modify it to be more helpful. And so I'd certainly say, you know, if somebody wants to be following a keto diet for that purpose, or if they're just super, super determined to follow a keto diet, I would still recommend meeting with a registered dietitian who's knowledgeable in that area. Um, but kind of the rationale with a ketogenic diet um, in terms of when it's utilized for weight loss um, is that when we restrict our dietary carbohydrates to um, less than 30 to 50 grams per day, um, the body goes into ketosis, which is where ketone bodies from fat are burned for fuel instead of glucose. You were mentioning earlier, like our brain runs on glucose, it runs on those carbohydrates. Typically, that's its preferred fuel source. Um, so since we're using up our glycogen stores, which is like our carbohydrate stores in our body, um, we tend to have a lot of rapid weight loss from water weight. So like in the first week or two, people might um, lose a lot of water weight because they're using up those glycogen stores. Um, our body really prefers to store energy as fat. It's more efficient. So if you can think about if humans stored um, our extra energy as all, you know, carbohydrate or glycogen, we'd be like potatoes, you know, we, there needs to be a lot of water yeah. in potato, right? So um, it's yeah. preferential to store as fat because it doesn't need all that water. Um, so um, insulin secretion goes down, um, you know, fat and protein tend to be pretty satisfying, satiating foods. So that might re result in like a lower calorie intake overall, um, you know, the concerns about a keto diet um, and the evidence behind it, I mean, we really don't have a lot of research on long-term effectiveness and outcomes in ketogenic diet and things. You know, so that becomes concerning, like this thing like lack of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, fiber, um, those things that are often in nutrition research really closely tied with, <laughs> with good health outcomes, you know, good cardiovascular mm -hmm. health and metabolic health. Um, those tend to be lower in a ketogenic diet. Um, and so there can be some, you know, some risks involved, you know, especially, you know, for people who um, have diabetes, they might be more at risk for um, hypoglycemia. Um, we have, you know, more loss of lean body mass. We want to keep lean body mass. That's good for our strength. It's good for our balance, flexibility, you know, our metabolic health um, can be um, at more risk of things like dehydration or GI issues like constipation from this lack of fruits and vegetables and, and whole grains and things like that. And then you don't get like the diversity of vitamins and minerals that you really need from the fruits and vegetables and stuff too. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you would not be getting um, you know, things like vitamin E that you would be typically getting from whole grains, right? You might have less of that. Um, you'd ha certainly have less dietary fiber, most likely, um, maybe a little bit high. It would be higher on, on things like total fat, saturated fat, et cetera. Um, 
And you know, we, a- we know there's been a lot of research on fats and heart disease. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that becomes a big concern. Yeah. And I think when you're thinking about this too, it's like, we don't have a lot of long-term research on ketogenic diet and like heart health specifically or long-term health outcomes. So I think when we're looking at keto, um, people are kind of using that proxy of body weight of saying like, well, with the ketogenic diet, you lose weight, therefore it must be more healthy. But if a lot of that weight loss that people experience, like we're talking about sharing on social media, people might talk about this like pretty significant weight loss happening so quickly. Um, A lot of that's water weight. And when we start consuming carbohydrate foods again, we retain that water again, it kind of returns our normal physiological state. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty restrictive. So um, thinking about, you know, something like, it might sound really appealing to some folks to, you know, eat a steak at every meal, <laughs> you know, because that's not something that they typically allowed themselves to do before. Um, or they might, you know, have foods that they miss or don't miss, but, but overall, you know, that can be really pretty restrictive. Um, and so yeah. people tend to not adhere to it very well long-term. And, and that goes back to that kind of weight cycling concept of where then once you, once you go back to whatever your typical eating pattern was, we tend to regain that weight that we lost and often a little bit more. Right. And this might be a good place to mention because, um, it's just come up more recently in a way that like I've been thinking this, this really needs to be brought out more. Like, yes, there can be health benefits in losing weight, but not weight loss in and of itself is not equivalent to good health. Like, um, you know, people experience weight loss, um, also when they're experiencing some very poor health things like, Mm -hmm. Um, cancer is one that comes to mind, um, that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's an important piece of the conversation that sometimes we're not always having like weight loss, um, doesn't always have to be extreme to have health benefits either. Like we know from research that five to losing just five to 10% of your body weight can really be beneficial in the realm of, um, several chronic diseases, right? Diabetes, um, cancer, cancer, cardiovascular disease, (laughs) cardiovascular disease. Um, like, so, and when you think about that, you know, if you're 200 pounds, then losing just 10 pounds can make a big difference. And, maybe yes, that's not going to be, um, the perfect BMI and the perfect, you know, all this other stuff, but it can drastically improve numbers. Yeah. And I think kind of what ties in with that is that, yeah, we know this like modest, modest weight loss of five to 10% of body weight, um, for some people can be really helpful, especially if someone is overweight or obese, um, that's something that can be helpful. We don't know, is it the health behaviors that they're engaging in mm-hmm. that is resulting in that, you know, improvement in outcome? So is it that somebody started getting more um, movement in their day or exercising more? Is it that they started um, 
you know, incorporating more um, fiber and fruits and vegetables or, or is it the weight loss? You know, the weight loss or the weight is almost like a proxy at that point. Um, we know there's a correlation between things like body weight and certain disease risks um, over time, but we don't know if it's the actual behavioral habits or is it the body composition or something that's happening physiologically in the body or is it something else you know even as we've um you know in recent years had more research that's looking at things like the social determinants of health and stress that people are undergoing and things like weight stigma mm -hmm. and the health care yeah. that people receive um you know depending on their physical appearance um but certainly people you know one thing to think about is having that kind of wider view of what some of the things that we can think about in terms of our health are. So our health is not just, you know, whether our BMI is in a certain range or, um, you know, whether we weigh X pounds more or less than we did yesterday. Um, but thinking about, you know, in terms of our metabolic health, we could think about what our cholesterol levels are, what, you know, how's our blood pressure looking, uh, what's our resting heart rate, are we getting enough sleep, what do um, things like our hemoglobin A1C or our blood sugar look mm -hmm. like. Um, so really kind of widening that scope to, you know, what's our energy level, how's our mental health, um, and not just, you know, deciding what, what someone's health is based on a physical appearance or, or a body weight. Yeah, and I like that you um, bring some of those points up because um, one area of research that I find really interesting that's uh, really kind of a new, newer branch of research that is starting to get more attention, um, possibly needs even more attention than it's getting, but um, the idea of healthy obese, which kind of hits mm -hmm. on what you're saying, it's like, the only number parameter that's a concern with these people is the waist size, mm -hmm. weight, um, waist, weight slash waist size, um, mm -hmm. that would classify them in that category as obese, which we know is associated with all of these other factors. But, um, in the studying of people who are considered healthy, it's, it's like all the other numbers fall in line. Like they don't mm -hmm. have high blood pressure. They do not have cholesterol issues. All the other health parameters look pristine. And so um, there is a lot of research going into that kind of question, which like is furthering that conversation that you're talking about, where it's like, it is a complex topic, like how much of this is diet versus, um, we know that there are correlations between these things, but we don't necessarily know, like it, there are areas where, because there's such a strong correlation, we might be being too quick to declare it causation mm -hmm. and say like, this is the cause of this. Um, even though we know that there are some strong associations with some different things. So anyway. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great, a great thing to mention too. Um, you know, because for a lot of things, uh, we actually find that being in like an, when we think about BMI and we're not, probably not today getting into all the complexities yeah. <laughs> and issues of BMI, but it is, you know, one of many things that can be used um, or that is used basically, um, to assess health, you know, it, it's not intended for that purpose, but that's how it's, you know, kind of evolved to have been used in our healthcare system. 
um, you know, that can be one piece of the puzzle, but we look at all these other pieces and say, okay, so it might be a little bit of a flag if somebody has a certain weight or a certain BMI. And that just means we maybe need to delve into, you know, mm-hmm. all right, what are all these other lab parameters looking like? Are we, um, how much physical activity are we getting each week? You know, what are, what are, what's our diet looking like? What are the foods we're eating looking like? Um, so it might be something that to maybe ping as a possible concern, but but those people can still be ben- metabolically healthy. That doesn't mean everybody is healthy at every possible body size they could be. That doesn't mean that that at all. Um, but we do see that there are people who are metabolically healthy at actually a wider um, range of body sizes than something like the BMI would reflect. Yeah. So, okay, let's hit a couple more diets. Yeah. Um, paleo. <laughs> <laughs> paleo diet. So um, let's see. I hadn't thought much about paleo diet in a little bit, to be honest. Um, paleo is one that was really popularized um, by a researcher out at, I think, University of Colorado. It's somewhere in Colorado. Um, and the idea is kind of eating like the cavemen eight um and cavemen and ladies cave ladies cave people (laughs) you know obviously led a much different lifestyle um than modern humans um there's there's not you know a strong evidence base i don't think to support a paleo diet i don't i don't have that stuff on a on a on a you know right at my fingertips right now um But what we do find is it's pretty similar to um, a lot of other restrictive or fad diets, kind of like um, low carb diets or a keto diet, where we're tending to be cutting out a lot of things like grains um, and some of the starchier vegetables and focusing more on things like lean meats and eggs and things like that. Um, So it has kind of like that similar effect of going with a lower carbohydrate diet. you know, again, paleo is, is one of those ones that says you shouldn't eat lentils or beans, which is a hard stop for me, personally. Yeah. Um, Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's arbitrary. I mean, I think, you know, something about, you know, paleo or even like an Atkins or a low carb diet is, um, you know, typically when we think about um, things like the dietary guidelines and the um, recommended um, macronutrients, you know, typically carbohydrates provide about 45 to 65%, or that's the recommendation for a healthy eating pattern from the dietary guidelines is for carbohydrates to comprise like 45 to 65% of the energy intake or calorie intake you have each day. and if, you know, maybe people kind of think about, all right, what are, what are some foods that I might tend to um, feel less control around or what food we kind of, we stigmatize certain things. So a lot of times those are our carbohydrate foods that we're having larger portions of. Um, those also tend to be, you know, more affordable as well. Um, so that can be an issue too. Um So, so certainly, you know, I think to back up a little bit, you know, there may be people who individually do have long-term success with these things. I mean, I'm confident in saying that that's true. Um, We just don't have a strong body of research saying that that it's helpful over time. Well, and I mean, I appreciate um, what 
one of my professors at Appalachian talked when he talked about paleo. Um, one point that he brought up is like we know there are cultural groups around the world who have diets and who have over years had diets that are very similar to paleo. Um, some of that is an access issue of what's available to them. Um, there leaves room to question like, you know, if they weren't living in conditions where they had access to more fruits and vegetables, would they be eating the fruits and vegetables? Like, mm -hmm. so, um, and it's, it, some of it's not like out of a choice per se. Um, and I think the other thing that's important is like some of the research that's done on these for the sake of understanding the weight loss component and whether or not people are able to stay, um, keep the weight off and that kind of thing. When we're talking about it in that kind of context, that changes the parameters of when you're talking about it in context of a people's group diet, um, mm -hmm. where that's what they have access to. That's what's surrounding them. Um, they're eating a diet like that to live and stay in life. And, um, you have to take into consideration in that regard, like, well, what are their health outcomes? What are their biggest chronic disease issues? Do they have any, um, what is their lifespan? If you're going to look at it in context of a weight loss diet, and if it's going to produce health in a human being who, who has access to so much more that we have more research on, like, you have to be thinking about those questions. Like, um, you know, it's otherwise, you know, is it only just about the weight loss to somebody? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, thinking about these things of like what we're saying and what we're not saying too. I mean, if somebody looks to a lot of the common educational materials that are put out like to support the dietary guidelines, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, you imagine one of those my plate posters in your head, right? And and you're seeing kind of like apples and bananas, or maybe not seeing like mango and papaya, um, mm, yeah, or dried yeah. and fruit, or we we're, we're seeing like lettuce, but we might might not be seeing like turnip greens, mustard greens, collard greens, thinking about some of the more more southern <laughs> regional type of foods. Um that are still really nutritious, that are really nutritious, but they're not necessarily pictured as such. And so that can right. send that message to some folks, to a lot of people that, that those are the only healthy foods to eat. And if they're the foods that they're eating doesn't align with those pictures, um, that it must not be healthy. And I think, you know, what you were just saying reminded me of um, something that I think is just a really cool um program. Um, there's in my brother and his partner um, live in Alaska. And um, mm. my brother's partner is a native Alaskan um, Yupik, oh. um, Yupik tribe. And um, so, so I, I know a little bit about this, you know, via her. Um, so Alaska tribes extension program has a pretty um, unique uh, at least from what I've seen, uh, they, you know, they have a, a different population than a lot of other states. They have a lot of native people, um, a lot of native lands, um, people who are living in unique or sometimes isolated communities. And so as mm -hmm. part of yeah. Alaska's commitment to like food sovereignty and sustainability for um, those Alaskan peoples, their extension program has funded positions for traditional knowledge holders 
Mm -hmm. um, who uh, work alongside Extension faculty and researchers to figure out ways to best serve their communities and to also utilize like their knowledge of traditional practices. So, um, you know, like in, in this case, it might be foraging for particular foods that have been traditionally um, consumed in their communities and talking about how to preserve and prepare those foods, you know, instead of going in with like a, let's can some applesauce, you know, we don't have apples. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they're out doing like wild chive gathering workshops and things that are, are pertinent and relevant and important to like sustaining the fabric of those communities and also in, in traditional knowledge. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so um, I just, I think that's really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. Food is so attached to culture. Like you cannot separate it. It, that's mm -hmm. just that's true for everyone around the world in some form or another like mm -hmm. any American is gonna have a hard time giving up hamburgers completely <laughs> even if it's a veggie burger just saying I mean it's so integrated into our culture and a part of like our socialization and everything in a way that I don't I think we don't totally get and um yeah, but yeah, that acculturation anyway. process too, right? We people tend to to lose some of those more nutritious or or healthful parts of their their native foods, you know, when they maybe come to the U.S. or maybe their parents of people who um, were immigrants to the U.S. I'm not sure if I used immigrant or emigrant right in that sentence, but sorry, <laughs> that. But you know, we yeah. we we know that when people acculturate to the foods here, we do tend to pick up on things like hamburgers um, or things that might not be, you know, the best of the best um, nutritionally, which isn't to say a hamburger has to be bad. Um, but it's just interesting, you know, looking at research on on things like a cultural acculturation and changes in cultural foods. And I mean, I think that's a really good kind of point to make in terms of, you know, if somebody is seeking, um, you know, nutrition counseling or nutrition advice with a registered dietitian, there's so, there's a lot of dietitians out there, right? And dietitians all have met certain requirements of, in terms of education and, um, you know, clinical internships and, and continuing education and things like this. But, um, you know, it historically has been not a very diverse um, crowd. So a lot of dietitians look like me. Um, but that thankfully is gaining some momentum and changing. So if somebody, you know, maybe is, um, you know, if they have certain cultural food backgrounds or certain identities, they could certainly seek out a dietitian that shares those identities and would be also, mm -hmm. you know, knowledgeable in, um, in, in those cultural foods and, and things like this. Um, so that I think that's really important to think about is that, again, a dietitian can't be the expert on everyone else, you know, so, so finding somebody to work with who can really enhance, you know, what your own knowledge um, and cultural practices have been, you know, regardless of, of what that culture is, I think it's really important. Okay, so intermittent fasting, I, I've seen a lot of research going on with this, and some of it's positive, where they think they're seeing success, um, where it's successful for people is that it's kind of limiting this time space that they're eating. So in theory, like maybe they're eating less calories. Um, though I would argue that that's probably very dependent on the person because if somebody is like, I don't know, I think I would have a hard time with it. 
if I was like limiting it to this degree, like, especially even more, like, I think I would probably gravitate more towards this is the time I can eat. And then you're like over consuming, but for other people, it seems to be helpful. So what are you seeing with it? Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said really speaks to how people have different like approaches and experiences with things. And so the idea of having, um, uh, limited time windows, so like intermittent fasting, really being abstaining from eating for set periods of time and then restricting their eating, eating to specific time periods. So, and that can be different things. So you're talking about fasting for like full days. And I agree, there seems to not be as much research on there as, you know, where people are having two days where they are eating very few calories and then eating their typical, you know, their typical intake the rest of the day of the week. But more common is this like fasting for 16 hours and eating during an eight hour window. Um, some people will mm -hmm. do 12 hours on 12 hours off. Um, so it's really about the specific time period. And um, I think some people might feel depending on the person, like some of us might go, Ooh, like, don't tell me I can't eat after six o'clock. That's, that's going to cause a lot of anxiety. I'm going to eat a lot at 545, <laughs> you know, um, and some people it, might reduce their anxiety around their food choices during that window to know that they're only having food in that time period. Um, so the kind of rationale with intermittent fasting is, is that fasting is going to um, decrease your insulin levels. Insulin is like an anabolic hormone. Um, so something that, that builds um, and it's going to help us burn fat for energy. Um, as far as the research base, there's not a consensus on the impact of fasting on metabolic rate. There's kind of mixed evidence on cardiovascular outcomes. Um, I've seen some research on intermittent fasting and, and like things like um, cognition and dementia and things like mm -hmm. that without any, you know, major um, conclusive evidence. So, you know, kind of the concerns that would come up with intermittent fasting. So with intermittent fasting, we're not talking about setting rules for what someone can eat. We're just setting rules around when they can eat. Um, and yeah. so that might appeal to some folks more than others. Um, so some things we think about are, you know, what is the adequacy of what they're eating on the fasting days and the non-fasting days, you know, how long-term can they do this? Some variability in how the fasts are implemented. You know, what if, what if, you know, you've got your, your work event where they're serving, serving the one meal right at the time that you can't eat or something like that. You know, some of those things that happen. Um, I know just even uh, this year, I've seen something that came out on, ooh, I think it was out of Chicago maybe, or somewhere in Illinois um, that has done a couple I, I think they've been studying intermittent fasting for a while, but they had a, a more recent, um, pretty long study where they um, compared a control group, a um, intermittent fasting group, and then a calorie restricted group. Um, and they looked at them for, I want to say about a year, possibly two. I was, I mean, this was something that was on, you know, in the media yesterday or something like this, but um so I know by the time podcast comes out, it won't be yesterday or anything. Yeah, right. um, but I, I think they were, they were finding from their results, if I recall correctly, um, the folks who were intermittent fasting, although they weren't counting their calories, they were ending up with a similar calorie reduction as that group who was counting calories. And so kind of okay. the take home from this 
was, um, and I think this has been similar in a bunch of intermittent fasting studies, is it's not clear that there's like any additional benefit to intermittent fasting over something like calorie counting. Um, they seem to go somewhat together, you know, metabolically, there might be some other things happening that give it a benefit. Um, but we're not sure about that. And so you might think about, you know, in this case, we're saying that the people who are intermittent fasting are just kind of going about it in a little bit different way, but it might be the same process that's driving um, any weight change. So it might be the fact that maybe someone doesn't want to count calories and that's totally fair. I don't want to count calories. <laughs> you know? right. um, I, so, so it might be, you know, for some folks, it's easier to think about like, okay, well, these are the time periods. I set up my schedule and this is when I eat and this is when I don't. And then I don't have to um, think about how many calories I'm eating. And it, and it might just be something that it, it makes, you know, more sense for them or is uh, more sustainable for them personally, but it's not necessarily going to be as such for anybody. So kind of going back to things like keto or paleo or low carb, like certainly there's going to be some folks for whom um, these diets are sustainable and result in like sustained long-term weight loss. Um, but for the vast majority mm -hmm. of people we find, you know, there's evidence that that's not the case. Yeah. Very good point. Um, yeah. So certainly no. not, you know, meant to like, you know, have everyone's aunt Janet who has been intermittent fasting for 15 years and sustains, you know, their yeah. desired weight loss to say like, what about me? Like, no, we know that this can work for some folks, but we know that it's not, it's not a, um, you know, whatever, yeah. a golden whatever people like 99% like, of, of the population it doesn't work for that yeah we know yeah re, based on research and statistics we know that for most people um it is not a long-term um kind of solution to this um sort of problem of weight loss yeah what other super concerning things are you seeing out there that you would kind of say, hey, I really feel like people, especially maybe um, in younger demographics, need to be really cautious of um, that, you know, it's like, this should send off a warning sign to you <laughs> if you're hearing this. Yeah. Um... I guess something that comes to mind is sort of a diet trend. So I guess I wouldn't call this a sad diet, but just mm -hmm. this um, sort of marketing shift over time towards labeling things as plant-based. I don't know. Is that something uh, that you have yeah, okay. observed? And, and so that's something, you know, plant-based isn't something that really has a strong definition. Um, and people, these are things that people kind of take a, a word or a definition and they run with it. So there's probably communities of people who feel this way or the other about describing having a plant-based diet. You know, it's not necessarily the same as having a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet. A lot of times there's different um, things implied depending on the word you're using, whether that's, you know, out of a health or an animal rights or an environmental concern, you know, we kind of get into a lot of different things there. And, and certainly um, following a vegetarian or vegan diet isn't necessarily synonymous with being a fad diet, because it can be motivated in so many different ways. So just mm -hmm. to kind of be clear with that. But um, the reason I brought up plant based is, you know, plant based has really been a huge trend, it's kind of been latched onto as a marketing 
term, um, we see more things like, right, we've got like impossible burgers, got like beyond meat. Um, those things are both in the grocery store as well as now, you know, in a lot of retail food opportunities. So someone can go to the, you know, the Burger King and get like their impossible Whopper or whatever. Um, so most of those products, you know, they're mimicking like a meat like taste or texture. They might mm -hmm. be marketed towards people who want to limit their meat intake for some reason, whether that's again, health concerns, environmental or other reasons. Um, you know, and they have a different, often a different nutritional profile than, than meat. Um, you know, they tend to be higher sodium products. Now, a lot of the ones we're getting like impossible and beyond, um, they have a much different taste and texture and mouthfeel than like the garden burger of 1990 or something, you know, they're, they're less like, they're, they're less comprised of veggies. And now they, they're comprised of things like soy protein and wheat gluten and, um, saturated fats from things like coconut oil. So their nutritional profile can be very different. Um, so I think I just think of that one as, you know, being aware that just because something is labeled being plant-based um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a better or healthier choice for you. So you still mm -hmm. want to be kind of making the comparison between different products as you're choosing and thinking about what your motivation is for choosing that food product, but not to just say, oh, I'm going to get the plant-based option because that's going to be healthier for me because that might not necessarily be true. Right. And just to make sure it's really clear what you're saying, we're not saying um, that plant-based in and of itself, especially if it's like you're saying, I'm just reducing the amount of meat that I'm intaking and I'm concentrating on eating fruits and vegetables and I'm concentrating on eating lentils and I'm getting all of my nutrients. We're, we're talking about the trend of plant-based that, um, has a lot of still, it's still processed foods yeah. and it's not that like some of them, it's not that you can't enjoy them and, um, that kind of thing, but do consider that it is still a processed food and yeah so it's still going to be one of those foods where in order to make it we can think about maybe things being on that continuum we want to think about the gray area again or we can think about a yeah. continuum of like we might have something like dried beans or lentils that would be a, a plant protein you know it's not going to be same mm. plant protein on the package because it's not you know that complex of a food um, or it's not getting marketed as such, right? But um, they don't have any sodium added. They don't have any fats added. Um, and then we might kind of scoot over on the slightly more processed side. Maybe we could say like, mm, I don't even know if this would be fair. How about maybe from there we go to like hummus, right? So where we started with yeah. the, the beans, like the garbanzo beans, and we added in like some garlic and some salt and we processed it. Um, and processing isn't a bad thing. It's a way to make food taste better. It's a way to make it last longer, you know, whether that's freezing or canning it. Um, so food processing isn't necessarily bad. It's just a different option. And then maybe on the more, maybe more processed end might be something like um, an impossible burger or a Boca burger. I'm not trying to pick on these two in particular, yeah. you know, it could be anything, um, but where we at one point, we're starting with soybeans and we added, you know, various other ingredients until we came out to this 
kind of food products, which is still fine. It's still edible. It's probably going to be higher in, you know, added fats, higher in sodium um, than the dried bean or the lentil. It's also, mm-hmm. you know, appealing. So that's fine. You're right. You know, might want to eat that sometimes instead of just dry beans or lentils. Like, again, we know, um, you know, eating a nutritious diet isn't just about knowledge because we probably could just go to eating the most basic kind of boring, repetitive thing. But we know as humans, we don't really stick with that. Um, so that's hard to do, you know. Um, yeah. But just kind of knowing that, that those things are all on a continuum, you can always compare the nutrition label for, you know, something like that to the the kind of typical version or like non-plant-based version. I just see so many things, you know, labeled as plant-based. Now, um, I know Metamucil has this ad for being a plant-based fiber, oh, seriously? And, all fibers, <laughs> and that drives me bonkers. Um, I mean, it's true, but it's like all fiber is, is plant-based. I um, mean, you, know, you see a lot of, um, I've seen sweeteners described as being plant-based sweeteners. Um, uh, a lot of the margarines that are being made with like olive oil or coconut oil or things like that um, will we'll hold that kind of branding on there and you still want to just be looking at that nutrition facts panel to kind of evaluate what's important for you and see if it is in fact the better choice or or not so i think that's that's something clearly i need to pay more attention in the grocery store (laughs) because um i don't know i mean we eat a lot of beans and and stuff like it's more cost effective too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But- and when you, when you're buying like a processed food, like a veggie burger, you're right. You're not going to, it's not going to be as cost effective as eating something like beans. You might have to put more time into cooking the beans. Like there might be some trade-off or other ingredients, but, but you're right. Um, in the cost department, they can add up to a lot, a lot for sure. <laughs> so Two diets that I do want to mention, and they're actually one kind of piggybacks off the other, and they're, they tend to be the diets that nutrition and RDs are more likely to recommend because they are some of the most well-studied diets Mm -hmm. worldwide. Um, and that is the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. Um, DASH diet is basically a lower sodium version (laughs) of the Mediterranean diet. And I kind of want to mention these in part, just because you're always going to have people who are like, I'm going to look for something. I just Mm -hmm. am. And so I want to leave something in their hands that we can say, you know, if you're going to go out and you're going to look for something these are two that like, if you're struggling with hypertension, you want to go towards dash. And if you're not like, we know people all around the world have studied these two diets and consistently they come out as being maintainable and having really good health outcomes in a number of different areas. Do you want to, um, add to that? (laughs) Yeah, so um, so you referenced the DASH diet, and that is one um, that was developed by the National Institutes of Health. So DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stopping Hypertension. So like you mentioned, high blood pressure. And so what DASH, as the name implies, it was uh, 
a, a dietary plan to, to manage high blood pressure. And they found that people had, you know, relatively good outcomes in terms of weight loss while following the DASH diet, as well as, you know, good heart health and metabolic health outcomes. So essentially the DASH diet is pretty unglamorous. You know, it's, it's a, a low sodium diet, um, it, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, you know, whole grains, lean meats, um, you know, limiting foods that are high in saturated fats. The saturated fats are those that are solid at room temperature. So things like, you know, fatty meats, full fat dairy products, um, tropical oils like coconut oil or palm oil, um, limiting those, um, but emphasizing like low fat or fat free dairy products, um, limiting sugar sweetened drinks. Um, and so that tends to lower our total cholesterol, lower LDL cholesterol, which is our, our bad our bad cholesterol or low-density lipoproteins um, and increase our HDL or good cholesterol, which is um, helpful in, in our, our overall cholesterol profile. Um, so they recommend 2,300 milligrams or sodium, 2,300 milligrams of sodium. So that's basically salt or less per day. Um, there's a even slightly lower version of 1,500 milligrams or less as well. Um, so we're trying to, you know, it's, it's pretty aligned, I would say, with things like what the dietary guidelines recommend in terms of you know, servings from various food groups and what foods to choose more often and less often. Um, so that would certainly be a nice starting point um, with the DASH diet. Um, Mediterranean diet you're mentioning, and that's one, you know, that's an interesting one to bring up because, um, that has been something that's been popular for a long time. A Mediterranean diet tends to be, um, you know, high in fruits and vegetables, higher in lean proteins. Um, more of the fats are coming from liquid oils and olives, um, you know, fish. Um, and then it's a little bit lower in dairy products than, you know, what we consider kind of like a typical American diet would be. Um, I've seen a lot um of kind of pushback too on the Mediterranean diet recently, almost going back to like what you were bringing up earlier about, um, you know, cultural awareness and um, yeah. th that like this, this one sort of version of the Mediterranean diet um, that we've come up with. I mean, that's a big region. People eat a ton of different foods in that region and those aren't necessarily yeah. the ones we see depicted um, in items about a Mediterranean diet too. So if we think about that region, there are around 22 countries that are categorized as Mediterranean, and they are grouped into three regions, the European Mediterranean countries, Asian Mediterranean countries, and African Mediterranean countries. Some of the European countries include some we typically think of like Spain, France, Italy, and Greece, but Slovenia and Albania are a couple we don't typically think about. Some of the Asian Mediterranean countries include Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon, and then some of the African Mediterranean countries include Morocco, Libya, and Egypt. Now, those just mentioned, which are also pictured here, are only 12 of the 22. That said, as Beth points out, the recent criticism of the Mediterranean diet among professionals in the dietetics and nutrition fields is not regarding the quality of the diet or the health outcomes. What is commonly thought of as the Mediterranean diet has its roots in the collaborative work of the Harvard School of Public Health, 
Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust and the European Office of the World Health Organization. And they released this work in 1993. They introduced a Mediterranean diet pyramid, and that pyramid focused on the dietary traditions only of Crete, Greece, and Southern Italy during the mid-20th century. These areas of the Mediterranean and the time period were chosen because of the low rates of chronic disease present in these parts of the Mediterranean during that period of time. Those areas also displayed higher than average adult life expectancies, even though there was little access to health care. It was unique that this pyramid also included daily exercise and the social aspects of eating meals together. The goal was to direct people towards healthy eating patterns as opposed to strict prohibitive rules often found in dieting. Although the Mediterranean diet, as developed in 1993, did not represent all of the food and cultures of the Mediterranean, the bottom line is a wealth of research has been conducted on the diet with positive outcomes. According to the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, research supports the use of the Mediterranean diet as a healthy eating pattern for the prevention of cardiovascular disease, increasing lifespan, and healthy aging. When used in conjunction with caloric restriction, the diet may also support healthy weight loss. All things considered, we can apply what we have learned about the Mediterranean diet in other cultures and find other foods and patterns that are more accessible in those cultures, but still have similar health benefits. There's just such a wide variety of foods there. Um, but I think that can generally be extrapolated to what people's, you know, cultural foods are in the different places they live. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, olive oil might not be like the end all be all best thing for everybody. It might not be accessible. It might not be, um, you know, a financially uh, possible decision. <laughs> you know, there might be other things that have a similar nutritional profile that are more accessible or that kind of align right. with what someone's cultural practices are. Um, so I think being open to that idea that, yeah, there is kind of like a general vibe of Mediterranean diet and lots of information out there on following that and being great for heart health. Um, but that's, someone can certainly get similar health benefits using foods from different regions of the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, um, I think the biggest takeaway from the Mediterranean diet is kind of what you're saying, like the research, what the research is really showing about that is that it's well-balanced. Mm -hmm. And so people are getting what they need. And that's part of why dietary guidelines are, um, you know, they, the research on that has helped influence dietary guidelines, but I don't know if you've ever done this. It's really kind of fun to go to um, look at all the different uh, governments. Um, yeah, the dietary guidelines for dietary countries. guidelines and yeah. how they like communicate that and to find the consistencies. And I think um, I, I don't know. I do that in comparison. <laughs> I'm super nerdy. <laughs> 
Um, one of my favorite ones is Ecuador's. I actually have it on my board. I should get it. Um, but it's like a spoon. Tell that us I about Ecuador's, Ecuador's dietary guidelines. Yeah, there it's a it's a spoon instead of a plate. And I love that on the handle of the spoon, like it has a family having dinner together and they're eating together. And then on the other end is all the agriculture that produces all the food. So I feel like it's like this whole full picture of what the food sources and the cultural aspect around food, but then there's carvings of like physical activity around the bottom of the spoon. So it like captures the physical activity component too. Um, but what I think is really cool, and I've done this with kids, like going into schools and stuff and saying like, you know, putting up a bunch of different cultures, um, communications of a healthy diet. And it's like, what do you notice that's the same? And if you are paying attention to it, like you can see, yeah, like one culture may not include dairy, but they're including dairy in a section of it. Like they're not getting rid of it. They're just not pulling it out to the side. Like we do. They're not drinking a glass of milk, right? Like they might be. Right. Yeah. And um, like you can see that the fruits and vegetables um, make up half of the plate or the spoon in Ecuador's case, or, you know, a huge portion of the pyramid. It is really interesting to go and look at that because you do start to see the commonalities. I think that is something for people to keep in mind, especially if you're gravitating towards some of these other diets that we've mentioned today, like, you know, some of them do have their roots in other cultures. So if that's something that's fascinating to you, go look at what some of those other cultures are saying, Hey, like, this is the well of research information. This is how it fits into, um, our way of thinking and how we're going to communicate to our people. Um, but, and look for the consistencies because I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think there's, um, that starts to kind of help people see where, what they gravitate towards in terms of textures and flavors and stuff can be brought together and you can see, oh, okay, like, there's nothing wrong with this food. Like it just may mean that like moderation for that particular food um, looks like it's much more restrictive than another food or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if some, if there's a, a culture who maybe they're predominantly consuming like stewed meats and stewed like lentils or beans and potatoes and onions and things like that, they might be using um, something like palm oil or coconut oil as a cooking oil, which is higher in saturated fat, but it might make sense within the context of what their kind of cultural dietary pattern is. If they don't have, you know, mm -hmm. butter or um, a lot of dairy, high fat dairy, or, um, you know, other saturated fat sources in their diet. Or if we think about, you know, um, things like different types of rice, we, you know, are getting fiber from various vegetables, you know, so there's, there's nothing to say that, you know, inherently, um, this dietary pattern is superior to all other dietary patterns. I kind of went off the rails on that one a little bit, but just keeping in mind, like what else is in the diet, you know, and, and, yeah. and onions and garlic are vegetables just like lettuce and baby spinach are, you know, so there's nothing less right. nutritious. They're a different food, but they're also a vegetable. So depending what that overall dietary pattern 
looks like. You know, one a person could be getting plenty of fiber from fruit and vegetable intake, and maybe it would be less important for them to switch from a refined, you know, white rice to a whole grain brown rice because they're already getting plenty of fiber and they're already getting those nutrients somewhere else. Um, you know, that's not necessarily mm-hmm. always the case, but if we always approach it with this blanket recommendation of like, well, let's just take this food and switch it to um, this food that's kind of like our American cultural norm, um, then we're going to be throwing out a lot of nutritious cultural foods. And that's also really, you know, disempowering, I think, to people to say, to that, people. you know, one one region of the world's got it best and we should all do that, you know. Well, and honestly, it's disempowering, like even to people who really love exploring food. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't even have to be disempowering just to those cultures. But I mean, let's face it, like we live in a country where a lot of us like to explore other foods and foods of other people groups and stuff like that. And so when you're super restrictive about these different diets, like it restricts your enjoyment of something that you enjoy and Mm -hmm. like to explore. So, um, I think there's value in that too. I mean, obviously the cultural aspect in, um, you know, when we're thinking about it for through the lens of dietetics and nutritionists and dealing with the public, like wanting to make sure that you're communicating things so that um, everyone is included and gets the access to what they need. But um, there's the flip side of that too, where it's like, it doesn't have to just be about that. And um, it can also be about like, you know, there's one of the wonderful things about food is that it is something that we're designed to enjoy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Enjoying food is a gift. Um, Not everybody gets that gift, right? So depending on like we were talking at the beginning about different conditions that people might have, you know, there might be a lot of strife or a lot of pain um, or a lot of mental or physical stress associated with food, but it is, um, enjoyment is definitely a valid reason to eat. And we don't always eat just for um, like fueling or for physical function. You know, it's normal that sometimes when we eat, it's because of maybe, um, you know, we're celebrating or we're sad and we're kind of comforting ourselves or someone else, or we might eat because we're bored and we're procrastinating a task. Yeah, I have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. But but again, kind of going back to that idea that, um, you know, if you notice that kind of like we're in a treat yourself mentality, but it might not be fixing the problem, like me taking a break to eat a snack to procrastinate something, unfortunately, doesn't actually get that task done any sooner. I still got to come back to it. Um, we might find other ways to kind of make ourselves feel better without using that food but sometimes it's it's fine to still eat for those reasons you know that's part of you know food as uh, you know really valuable um and an accessible kind of coping tool it's an easy way to make ourselves feel better until that becomes you know something that might be a problem um and i think that would be up to the individual but um you know knowing that's part of you know cultural celebrations um and social events and things like that, that we don't only have to eat because something is good for us in one specific way. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit broader than that. Most of the time it's 
going to be broader Maybe than broader that. Maybe broader than that, yeah. Yeah, to, and to deny that is really going to be kind of denying ourselves in a lot of ways. So if we think, oh, I can I can eat just with my brain based on, on this fad diet parameters, I think our evidence base says that's probably not going to work. And so people might be left with like, well, if none of these things are going to work, like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and I think the, the answer to that is um, not the most glamorous answer, but going back to looking at some of those commonalities of things that we see that are consistently associated with good health, like across time. And a lot of times that is having a lot of foods from plants, so fruits and vegetables, um, whole grain foods, um, having a diet that's overall lower in some of those saturated or solid fats, um, those are consistently associated with pretty good health outcomes, you know, and of course, we, we talk, there's a lot of other things that influence our health outcomes besides um, a person's diet, um, but thinking about what those are, what's important to you, you know, knowing kind of how you tick and, um, you know, is there certain types of physical activity that you like, it would probably be better to gravitate towards those than one that you dislike just because, you know, somebody on TikTok is doing whatever the thing is where you go on the treadmill at CrossFit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you're on the treadmill for 30 minutes and it's at a 12 or something. I don't know what it is. It's like, whatever, a three speed, 12 incline, 30 minutes. I don't know. I forget. But but just because it's working for someone else doesn't mean that it's going to work for us, you know? Um, so right. thinking about like really getting you to love running know run. ourselves. What's that? <laughs> yeah. If, if you, you love, love running run, 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 if you don't. If you not, want yeah. to find something else, find something else, go canoeing. <laughs> right. Like moving is, is, is important. Um, you know, moving throughout the day, um, you know, getting both like that sustained, moderate or vigorous physical activity, as well as like breaking up sitting time as well. Um, all those are important, but also doing it in a way that can bring us joy. And, um, you know, if people are more social and I mean, I, it just wouldn't be my thing to do this, but if you want, if you're social and wanted to be doing a tennis team where you ha meet people a couple times a week to play tennis, that's great. That sounds great for somebody else. I want to be by myself. <laughs> but but I you're think that's not important. into pickleball. You don't see yourself doing pickleball anytime soon. <laughs> I'm kind of interested by that, but you know, I I yeah, I just the idea of having to be having another place to be at a certain time is like a non-starter for me right, right at this moment. It has to be, it has to be a little more flexible. But um, but that doesn't. Yeah. And if somebody else plays pickleball and is in like amazing from the outside that doesn't mean that pickleball is the end-all be-all <laughs> you know I think that different yeah. things can certainly um you know jive with different people in different ways for sure for sure yeah I personally like a variety or I get bored mm -hmm. so yeah. awesome well thank you so much Beth like I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that's like a burning? I feel like people need to be left with this. Um, you know, I feel like we covered a lot. We might have raised some questions more than provided all answers. And I just acknowledge that, yeah. you know, it, it's it's easy for people to present um, having the answer and having the best thing. And there are a lot of people out there who uh, will kind of proclaim themselves a nutrition expert and say that their way is the way. Um, but try different things, 
see, you know, what's important and what works best for you. I think, again, different strokes for different folks um, is certainly applicable in the nutrition world. Like we talked about, we do have some things um, that we do consistently see um, as being associated with, with improved, you know, prevention and management of certain common chronic illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, or kidney disease over time. Um, but it really varies depending on the individual and kind of going back to that idea of attaining the best possible standard of health like for our individual selves and our situations too. The views of us described in the Signal Podcast are based on and not necessarily represent the views of and opinions of the University of Georgia or the guest organizations and board employers. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The University of Georgia name, as well as its guest organizations, and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Thanks for joining us. Check out our website at That's F-A-C-S of life.extension.uga.edu.